Our reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 4, from verse 1 to 22. 1 Samuel 4, verse 1. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. The Philistines captured the ark. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's Covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the opera, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. Oh no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you'll be subject to the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The Ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Death of Eli That same day, a Benjaminite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching because his heart feared for the ark of the Lord. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town set up a cry. Eli heard the outcry and asked, What is the meaning of this opera? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. He told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, What happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the Ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell backwards off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and he was heavy. He had led Israel for 40 years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the Ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. 
As she was dying, the women attending her said, Don't despair, you have given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because of the capture of the Ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband, she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the Ark of God has been captured. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's a strange chapter, isn't it? Um, here we are, we've been looking at the story of 1 Samuel and the kind of leader that God's people need. Uh, and we've seen Hannah give birth to Samuel and he's gone and been trained by Eli. We've got a hint, perhaps, that Samuel might be quite an important figure. The book's named after him, after all. Uh, but then he goes missing. For three chapters, four, five, and six, we don't hear a word out of him. Even more strange, by the end of the chapter, it seems as if God's gone missing. We're told that glory is departed from Israel. What's going on? Well, actually, it is still part of the same story. See, last week, God had told Samuel that he was going to do something. Chapter 3, verse 11, the Lord said to Samuel, See, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. Now, we've met Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. We've seen that they are corrupt leaders. And God has promised that he is going to get rid of them. He's going to sweep away the old leadership to make room for the new. And that's what chapter 4 is about. It splits into two halves. Each half ends with two people's deaths being recorded. We've got Hophni and Phinehas in the first half, and then Eli and his daughter-in-law, Phinehas' wife, in the second half. And those two halves form the whole chapter, and the chapter is going to teach us something about how not to relate to God, and then something about how God is still at work, even in desperate situations, even in difficult circumstances, even when it looks like maybe he's failed. But if we're going to understand the chapter, we just need to do a bit of scene setting. And so the first thing we need to do is realize, verse 1, that all of a sudden we meet a new people, the Philistines. Uh, we've not heard about them in 1 Samuel yet. Uh, and we realize Israel is at war with them. The language that's used about the Philistines in verse 2 says that they are a military force. They, they deploy their forces and, and they seem to be well organized. Uh, they seem to be stronger than the Hebrews. Verse 9 tells us that the Hebrews are subject to the Philistines. Um, history tells us that in about 1100 BC, uh, the Philistines and other people known as the Eastern Sea Peoples uh, sailed down from the Aegean Sea and landed on the west coast of Canaan. I think we've got a map uh, showing that. Uh, and they've invaded the region and they are too powerful for the Israelites. In verse 2, we hear about a battle where the Philistines defeat them and kill 4,000 of them. And so the Israelites are there thinking, what on earth are we going to do? This new army has come in out of nowhere, and they're too strong for us. And so they asked that question. When the elders uh, returned to the camp, they said, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? What's going wrong? 
It's a good question to ask, it's the right question to ask, but they should have waited a little before answering it, as we'll see. They leapt to a conclusion that was wrong. What they think the answer is, is we need to find a secret weapon. This army's too strong for us, we need to find a secret weapon. It's a, it's a bit like one of those Hollywood sci-fi films, isn't it? Uh, you know, where alien invaders come in that are far too powerful uh, and humans don't have a chance. And so someone goes on a quest to find a secret weapon that is the weak, weakness of the aliens and with that weapon they can destroy the invaders. Uh, it's a bit like that. Only they don't have to go looking. They, they think they already have a secret weapon. And the secret weapon is the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. We're going to look at the chapter in those two halves that I talked about. And the first half is the report of the battle where they take the ark into battle or what happens as they take the ark into battle. And I've called the first half the ark of God fails. The ark of God fails. But those, that fails is in inverted commas. And that will be important as we see. Now, what is this, this ark? Pete explained it to us earlier, didn't he? It's a, a special box that contained the Ten Commandments. It it was in the sanctuary in Shiloh. It was an important part of uh, the worship practices of of Israel. Uh, It was beautifully decorated. um, And it it was a reminder, it was a gift given to them by God uh, to remind them that they were his special people in a special relationship, a covenant, uh, with with God. So it was very precious to the Israelites, this, this ark. And they decide that this precious ark is what they need. If they take that into battle with them, then they will defeat the Philistines. That's the plan uh, they come up with after they say, why have we been defeated? In verse um, uh, three, they say, let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? Well, there are reasons to think it might be a good idea. First of all, there's the history of the ark. Uh, Joshua had used it not that long before, uh, and he'd taken it into battle. And when he did, God gave the Israelites victory over the people of Canaan. So maybe it's a good plan. It it worked before. Maybe it'll work like that again. Uh, There's the design of the ark. In verse 4, it's called the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, literally of the Lord of armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And cherubim are like angelic super beings. Um, They were carved onto the design of the ark. So there were statues of cherubim on the ark. Uh, And also in the prophets later on in the Old Testament, the cherubim are the beings who pull God's war chariot. Ezekiel sees a vision of them uh, pulling God's war chariot. So these are powerful super beings, fierce and uh, good in battle. And so if you take the ark, the ark obviously by its design is a sort of military object on one level. Um, So maybe that's a good reason to take it in. And the third reason why it might be a good idea to take it in is is its effect. So in verse 5, they take the ark into camp and Israel gets very excited. uh, And then the Philistines hear that they've brought the ark uh, and they get very distressed. Uh, They say, we're doomed. And so... Um, the Israelite morale is raised and Philistine morale goes down. Any general will tell you that morale is very important when you're fighting a battle. So it does look like it might be a good idea. And yet, there's just a couple of hints that maybe it's not such a good idea. First of all, we're told in verse 4 that Hophni and Phinehas were there with the ark. Now, why does he, the writer give us that detail? 
I've been trying to illustrate that, think about how to illustrate that for us. When I was growing up, there was a cartoon called Wacky Racers. Uh, and every week uh, there'd be a race and there was a baddie, Dick Dastardly, and he would try and win the race by cheating. And he had some crazy plan each time to try and win the race uh, through cheating. And you knew every week the plan was going to go wrong. The plan was going to go wrong because it was Dick Dastardly's plan. And he was the bad guy and his plans always went wrong. He was no good. Well, Hophni and Phineas here, it's the same thing. If they're involved with this plan, it can't be a good plan. But there's another reason uh, why it's not a good plan. In verse 3, when they say, let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, uh, that's actually a little softer than the original. The, the original says something a bit more like, let us take for ourselves the Ark of the Lord's Covenant. This is their plan. They've not asked God even though they're supposed to be in a relationship with God, they don't ask him what he thinks. They just say, we think this is a good idea, we're going to do it. It's an arrogant plan. They've not consulted God. It's also a manipulative plan. It seems like the logic is, look, God's, the Ark of the Covenant is, is an important object. It, it shows that God is glorious and honorable. God would never let it be captured. We can't lose if we carry the ark with us because God's not going to let the ark be captured. It would dishonor him in the eyes of the Philistines and everyone else. He won't do that. And so the plan is hatched and they take the ark into battle. The Philistines panic for a bit, but then verse 9, their generals say, Be strong, Philistines. Be men or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and the Israelites were defeated and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. It's a massive defeat. That's the real reason you know it wasn't a great plan. It didn't work. They were massacred. There's something in their attitude, though, the Israelites, that I think we need to just dwell on for a moment that arrogant, manipulative attitude that, that thinks that they can do what they want and twist God's arm. Don't consult God and think about what he wants, but just try and manipulate him into doing what they want to do. It treats God sort of like a vending machine. You know, in a vending machine, you put a coin in and you hit what you want and you get what you want out. And it's as if you can treat God like that. You do the right thing the right sort of religious practice or whatever it might be, and God will send you a blessing back. In this case, you take the ark into battle, God will give you a victory. You do X, God will do Y. And yet as I reflect, I think I find that attitude in my own heart. If I only do these things right in my job as student minister, uh, maybe if I do uh, long prayer sessions or, or uh, particular programs that I run in place, then God's bound to bless the ministry and, and double it in size. Uh, as a younger man, I, I remember thinking, well, if I apply for a job and if I pray about it uh, and if I uh, fill my application form in honestly and if I mention that I'm a Christian and I'm not ashamed of Jesus, then God will have to give me the job, won't he? I wouldn't have said it out loud, but in my heart of hearts, I think like that sometimes. And maybe they resonate with you, or maybe it's a different situation. Maybe it's something about uh, a relationship. Maybe you're thinking, well, if I approach relationships in a godly way, 
and I'm pure and I don't flirt or, or string people along unhelpfully, uh, then, then God's bound, isn't he, to bring the right person my way. Now, as we say often at Platt, there's nothing wrong with a job, a relationship, or a ministry. Uh, those things can be great blessings from God. But the thing we've got to watch out for is that attitude. If I do X, then God's bound to do Y, isn't he? God doesn't work like that. That's what Israel's got wrong. He's not just a vending machine that they can pull the right lever and get the right thing out. And therefore their plan fails. The ark of God fails. And yet it's not that God failed. So if the first half is the ark of God failed, then the second half brings out that the word of God fulfilled. The word of God fulfilled. Remember where we started in chapter 3, God had promised to sweep away the house of Eli. Well, in verse 11, we hear that Hophni and Phinehas, his two sons, are dead. So now the scene shifts to Eli. We're told that he is by this stage an old man. He's 98. He is blind and he's sitting on his chair by the side of the road and he's watching and waiting, hoping, hoping that someone's going to come and bring news. And he's particularly afraid for the ark. The ark is such a precious object to Israel and he's, he's a priest, so he's got a responsibility for it. Doesn't want it getting lost. He's very afraid. And then someone comes running. This Benjamite we read about in verse 12. Now, picture the scene. You're Eli and you're blind. So when the Benjamite runs into Shiloh, everyone else can see that his clothes are torn and he's got dust on his head. They know it's bad news he's bringing, but Eli doesn't know that. And in fact, it takes so long for Eli to get the information. First of all, because he can't see him when he runs into town. Second, because he tells everybody, but Eli seems to be too far away. He can't, can't hear. So there's a commotion and an outcry. And then Eli has to say, what, what's going on? What, why is there this outcry? And then the man comes to Eli. And Eli has to say, what happened? And even then, it takes him ages to get to the real issue that Eli cares about. So he goes through. The man who brought the news replied, verse 17, Israel fled before the Philistines. Not good. And the army suffered heavy losses. Not good. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. Really not good if you're Eli. And, punchline, the ark of God has been captured. And at that moment, that is the most distressing news of all. Because it's a sign to the Israelites that, that God has left them. He's abandoned them. If they've lost the ark, they've lost God in, in their thinking. And so at that, he falls back and breaks his neck. Eli, like his sons, dies. And the word of God is fulfilled. There is an irony there at the end in verse 18. It talks about how Eli led or judged Israel for 40 years. The judges were supposed to be great leaders who led their people in battle and led their people to God. And here's Eli described as a judge, as a leader. And yet we realize in four chapters, the picture that's painted of him is anything but. Leaders have vision. Eli has none. In chapter one, he can't even see that Hannah's praying in the temple, thinks she's drunk. 
He doesn't realize it's God who's speaking to Samuel for ages in chapter 3. And as his spiritual sight is shaky, his physical sight has been deteriorating all the way through. It is sort of a symbol for Eli, the one who can't see anything. In chapter 3, we're told his eyes were weak. Here we're told they failed and he can't see anything. Uh, Eli's a poor leader because he has no vision, no spiritual vision, and by the end, uh, no physical vision either. He's also a poor leader because he's so passive. He knows his sons are corrupt and evil, and he tries a little bit to rebuke them, but it's pretty half-hearted. He just lets them carry on. He even lets them take the ark, even though he's scared for it. Eli is no leader. And therefore, God has fulfilled his word and removed him and his family from leadership to make room for something else. And then we get a kind of postscript with his daughter-in-law. She hears the news. Understandably, she is sad and distressed. She is pregnant, heavily pregnant, and gives birth. And it must have been a, an interesting moment in one sense. You know, you got all this terrible news about your husband and your father-in-law dying, and, and then you give birth. And the midwives try to cheer her up, I suppose. Don't despair. You've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. It's a bleak picture. And yet, just as with Eli, the thing that really distresses her is that they've lost the ark. And she calls the son Ichabod, which means glory has departed or something like that. Glory has departed. There's another little joke there because it talks about Eli being heavy and the word for heavy and glory, uh, kavod, kavod, is sort of the same. So there's a a pun. Uh, Eli's heavy, but he's not glorious because there's no glory because the glory's departed. Um, So there's a bit of a a joke going on there, a sort of dark humor. Um, And it's a tragic scene. She names the boy Ichabod to mark a desperate day in Israel's history. And she's right. There is something desperate going on. God's people are very far from him. It's a bleak day and their defeats to the Philistines are just an outward sign of what's going on spiritually. But she actually gets it the wrong way round. She thinks the glory's departed because they've lost the ark. Whereas really they lost the ark because the glory departed. They turned away from God. That's why they lost the ark. She's still got too small a view of God. She, she thinks that he goes around with this box. He doesn't. You can't put him in a box. He is bigger than that. And that's why God can allow the ark to be captured. Because he's still working out his word and fulfilling his promises. His promise to remove Eli and his house from leadership. His promise to bless his people, as we'll see, will be fulfilled as the book continues. And God is even willing to suffer dishonor in the eyes of the world in order to fulfill his word. You can imagine the Philistines bragging, can't you, as they carried the ark back. Look at us, we're so strong we can defeat Israel's God. We've got him here in a box. Well, that doesn't work out too well for them, as we'll see next week. Uh, But in the meantime, God does look to be dishonored in their eyes. And yet, in order to fulfill his word, for the good of his people, God is willing even to suffer dishonor in the eyes of the world. I guess there's no more obvious example than the cross itself. As God in the flesh is hung on a cross, naked, battered, bruised, and beaten. 
Look at your God. Look how weak he is. The Romans must have thought. And yet, in that apparent weakness, God brings about a glorious victory over sin and death and hell. It's a pattern that's echoed throughout the Bible. There's an echo of it here in this story where God seems weak, the ark seems to fail, and yet in the midst of all that, God's word is still being fulfilled. That's important as a truth for us to hold on to right now, I think. We might be wondering what God's doing. Is he weak? Is he powerless over the pandemic? Or it might be some other situation that's going on in the world or in your own life. But seeing that actually we have a God who specializes in taking moments of apparent weakness and despair and using even them to fulfill his word to bring about a better future for his people. That's what we're going to see as the story unfolds. And I hope as we do, we'll, we'll be able to glorify the God who turns weakness into triumph.